0: Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give thanks unto Thee as we face the problems of our day, that Thy purpose, O Lord, shall prevail, that Thy kingdom shall come, that Thy rule shall be established from pole to pole, and the people shall praise Thee. Make us ever mindful, our Father, that we have been called to victory and that this is the victory which overcometh the world, even our faith. Grant us now, Lord, as we study thy word that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law, that we may be delighted with the certainty of thy truth and the blessedness of thy word. Grant us this we beseech thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today is Matthew 7.12, The Golden Rule. Our subject is The Golden Rule. Matthew 7.12 Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them for this is the Law and the Prophets. The golden rule, as we saw last year when we were going through this chapter in summary fashion, is found in many cultures. I have somewhere a book that gives simply the form in a great number of pages of the golden rule in various cultures. It's very commonplace. However, in each instance, it does have a different meaning. In every form except the biblical, the golden rule appears in a negative cast. It reads, Do not do unto others as he would not have them do unto you. Confucius, for example, said, What you do not like, if done to yourself, do not do to others. So that it is always negative in the formulation outside of the Bible. Now, this does not mean that a negative formulation is necessarily bad. But if the culture is as many in the Far East are, given to a world and life negation, the golden rule and counsels passivity and non-interference. Now, what does that mean? Well, a faith, a philosophy, can be world and life affirming or world and life negating. Virtually every religion and philosophy Falls into the area of world and life negation, some much more so than others. For example, Hinduism, Buddhism, and many other faiths say that nothingness is ultimate. Now, whatever is ultimate in your faith is the highest good in your faith. If God is ultimate, because you are a believer in Scripture, then God is your highest good, the summum bonum. But if all things came out of nothingness or chaos, then nothingness or chaos is ultimate. You're going to prize it. The goal of Buddhism that assumes nothingness to be ultimate is Nirvana, and their concept of nirvana is that it is nothingness, it is eternal death. Mahatma Gandhi could say that he hoped he had been holy enough in this life that he would never be in re- reincarnated again and would be eternally dead. Life for him was a curse. Death being ultimate, the highest good, was death, eternal death. Now consider for a moment. In the 1700s, philosophy came to a belief in evolution. At first, it was a philosophical premise, a premise that we encountered in men like Kant and Hegel. Then it became a biological faith with Darwin. But about a century before Darwin, the philosophical premise had been developed. It had come to be believed. And what happened? Because in terms of the philosophical premise you believed that all things came out of original chaos, then you replaced God as ultimate with chaos as ultimate. And therefore, what is it that you invoked? We invoke God if we believe in God. We pray to God because we feel the need for God, the ultimate power in the universe. But if chaos is ultimate, then what do we invoke? Why, chaos, revolution. And so... When men began to believe in the Western world that chaos is ultimate, they began to invoke chaos as the answer to the problems, and it came to focus first in the French Revolution. And we have had, as one historian after another has called it, the age of revolutions, 200 years of this, because it is the ultimate power, chaos, Out of chaos, everything came. So if you want a better world order, have greater chaos. And out of it will come more order. Do you see the point? The golden rule means what your faith makes it to mean. If life is a burden, then you do not give life support to others. You abandon the sick and the elderly, and the unwanted children, or girls, or whatever the culture says is excess baggage. If death is ultimate, then death is a blessing. And because today we have again taught in our schools a belief in the ultimacy of death and chaos, is it any wonder that we have today abortion as a right and a virtue, euthanasia, and the right to suicide now increasingly being affirmed. You see, whatever your basic faith is will condition the meaning of what the golden rule is. In some far eastern cultures, it means that the greatest good you can do to others is to allow them to die. If they are in the Yangtze River because they've fallen overboard, you let them die. Why curse them with more life? But I said, if the golden rule is encountered in a negative form, the meaning still depends on the religion behind it. For example, Rabbi Hillel in Old Testament times said, Whatsoever thou wouldest that men should not do to thee, do not do that to them. His formulation is very close to that of Confucius, but the meaning is very different because Rabbi Hillel went on to say, this is a summary of the law and the prophets, what God taught in his law, the Old Testament. He made it emphatically clear. It had a very different meaning then, although the words were almost identical to Confucius' words. For Hillel, it meant Abide by God's law if you expect other people to treat you as you would like to be treated. Bring about God's law order in which all men abide one with another in terms of the righteousness of God. We find this particular formulation that Hillel gives in a number of Christian scholars and rulers, including Alfred the Great. But the golden rule has more to it than that. It is an aspect of the dominion mandate. Now, for many religions, it can mean a way of retreat. Do not do to others what you would not have them do to you. Just stay in your shell Be non-involved, because you don't want them involved. You stay in your yard, and I'll stay in mine. But what our Lord means by it is closely linked to the dominion mandate, to exercise dominion and to subdue the earth through the whole word of God, the law of God. Therefore all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Our Lord adds something to the golden rule that is not present in all the non-Christian forms. He says, this is the law and the prophets. We cannot use the golden rule apart from those words. Our Lord makes it clear. What is the teaching of the law and the prophets? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, and being, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And what is it to love someone? Why, you keep the law in relationship to him. Thou shalt not kill. You respect his right to life. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You respect the sanctity of his home. Thou shalt not steal. You respect his property. Thou shalt not bear false witness. You respect his name. And thou shalt not covet. You shall not desire what is his, nor seek to defraud him of what belongs to him. Our Lord has made it clear in the Sermon on the Mount that heaven and earth shall pass away. But my law shall not pass away, not one jot nor tittle thereof. The law is not presented by our Lord as something that is to go or that is an enemy to us. The law is only an enemy to sinners. What our Lord teaches us, therefore, on the golden rule, is the royal virtue. The royal virtue, the way of God, the way of the King of kings, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. If the golden rule is detached from the law and the prophets, from Jesus Christ, from the word of God, it can be an invitation to sin. The Marquis de Sade was the first one who saw that point. He was all for the golden rule. But of course, he said, all men are depraved and any pretense to virtue is a fraud. All men are sadomasochistic. All men have a desire to practice every perversion. So... Let's do unto each other as we would like to have done, one to another. Let's indulge in the 101 days of Sodom or whatever else he had in mind. And that was his faith and his philosophy. And in the past 15 years, that concept was revived, and some people did make use of the Golden Rule to justify their thoroughly pornographic perspective with respect to mutuality, to doing one to another. To deny the law basis of the golden rule is to leave oneself wide open to that kind of interpretation. This is why the golden rule, as we encounter it in various cultures all over the world, and as we encounter it in its usage today, is not the same as it is in the Bible. Because in the Bible, the concluding part of the golden rule is, for this is the law and the prophets. To deny the law basis of the golden rule is to make it humanistic and to say that a will to death, suicide, abortion, euthanasia, and more can be vindicated in terms of the golden rule. In fact, one contemporary scholar has insisted that the golden rule needs to be stated negatively. He has said there is so much evil in the world and so few of us who are capable of any goodness, that if we say, do not do unto others what you would not have done unto yourself, it would enable us to live better, because he said each of us would stay in our own corner and we wouldn't bother anyone else. Non-involvement. This was what Dr. Abrams said said was the meaning of the golden rule, at least as he read it. Non-involvement. Don't get involved, because involvement only leads to trouble and to evils. But even Sherman Johnson, a modernistic scholar, has said, and I quote, "...the essence of righteousness is the constructive doing of good." not the negative avoidance of evil, unquote. The constructive doing of good, not the negative avoidance of evil. And our Lord makes it clear what that constructive doing of good is. It is the law and the prophets. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, Thou hast spoken the word, and Thy word is truth. Give us grace to hear and to obey, to rejoice in Thy word, and to know that it is the remedy for our problems. Make us people of the golden rule of Thy law, of Thy love and grace, that we might bring all things in conformity to thy holy purpose. Grant us this we beseech thee in Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now?
1: Yes. Uh, We happened to turn turn on the television this morning and Jerry Falwell was on. And he, uh, this is, I think, an exact quote. He said, This body was created in the image of God." Now, that surprised me a great deal We're, as I understand, we're created in the spiritual image of God, the Bible is the Holy Spirit. He said, this body
0: is created in the spiritual image of God, and
1: that surprised me a great deal that he would say that.
0: Yes, uh, I think at that point he was off base, because very definitely we are told in various texts of Scripture that the image of God is righteousness, holiness, knowledge, and dominion. So that uh, the Bible defines in various passages the image of God, and it does not speak of it as a physical image. I'm afraid he got carried away and uh, overstated the matter.
1: Is that not something uh, that uh, I think of Southern Baptists where I've heard that so much? Uh, they tend to fall into that error?
0: I don't know. Do I've know not know? heard enough of them to know. <laughs> I used to so not, couldn't not say. As,
1: a, as that group uh, uh, per se, but as a, a generality of yes. people who in that direction. Mm-hmm.
0: I, I really don't know as to that. I rarely encountered that uh, statement. But uh, it's clearly wrong, because it's uh, pushing Scripture to say something that it does not say. Any other questions? Yes.
1: Uh, are the various revolutions that have been carried on around the world in the last 50 years as a result of this belief in the ultimacy of chaos? And if so, the new orders that have come out of them haven't been very good, have they?
0: No, that's right. In the ancient world, man believed that the world came out of chaos. He worshipped chaos. We have a faint relic of the cults of chaos in the Mardi Gras. What. the cults of chaos did in the ancient world was to say that chaos is a necessity. We worship chaos. And so once a year for a matter of days or up to two weeks, all order would be illegal and all disorder would be mandatory. So that every kind of sexual perversion had to be practiced. Uh, No one was permitted to do anything that was orderly the worst condemned man in prison was released for the period and made the king, even to possessing the queen, total disorder, total chaos became the rule. The Saturnalia is the best known of these. They felt that only so could society be revitalized. However, they wanted order, the other 50 weeks. But they felt the world would run downhill if it were not given a charge of disorder periodically. Now, this actually involved in some other religions where they didn't have the periodical festival going to the temple to practice there some perversion, a deliberate and repulsive act of perversion in order to revitalize, recharge their life with chaos. But when faith, Christian faith, came in, our charge came from being born again and being in continuing communion with the Lord through prayer and through a knowledge of His his Word. Well, when men began to depart from that, their faith went to chaos as a result of the doctrine of cultural evolution which preceded biological evolution by about a century. The net result was that they felt in all their being the need for chaos, and hence they deliberately created chaos in society revolution until that faith goes, it will be a must. Well,
1: there is a tie-in and the revolutions of going on yes. around
0: the world. All over the world, yes. Yes.
1: <coughs> me. Didn't they realize that in order and chaos, that they uh, exalted order? It, just by making a law that says you had to be disorderly, you uh, automatically have order. Just the fact that you have a law there. Mm-hmm. So, didn't mean, just wouldn't
0: this, wouldn't be aware of this? Uh? No, they were not. Unless you might say they were unconsciously, because during the Saturnalia, the one element in society that was forbidden to stop work, everybody else was ordered to stop work totally. The one group forbidden to stop work were the bakers. <laughs> because you could live for a matter of days or two weeks on good black bread. And they wanted to stay alive during the uh, Saturnalia. So the bakers had to work, and the baker's shop was off-limits to anybody with his disorder. Yes? Yes.
1: An Iranian was on television recently. Who? An Iranian. Oh, an Iranian, A, Mo- yes. a Muslim. Yes. And he was saying that they believe in one God mm-hmm. and that theirs is a true religion and that the Christian religion is a pagan religion because we believe in three gods, the mm-hmm. Trinity. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was not able, no one was able to explain this to him. How mm-hmm. uh, would you explain it?
0: I don't think he wanted it explained. First of all, we believe in one God, three persons. Uh, Second, uh, Islam borrowed its idea of God from the Bible. So, if uh, ours is pagan, theirs is more so, because it's a hand-me-down. Third, they have tried to replace the three persons of the Trinity with a variety of djinns and spirits and whatnot, and they have had to replace Christ with a belief in a Mahdi, a Savior who is going to come. So it has been a very cheap imitation religion. Uh, They've replaced the Spirit of God with a variety of... uh, uh, weird spirits, and Christ, the second person of the Trinity, with a future Mahdi. There have, by the way, been several pretenders, several false Mahdis, and in fact, uh, oh, uh, Lord Gordon uh, of Khartoum, lost his life to the Mahdi of the Sudan. Yes, who's been the most prominent to Mahdi in uh, the past century. So, uh, Islam has been uh, an imitator of the Bible very self-consciously. Any other questions or comments? Yes.
1: In your talk, you gave a reference to Alfred the Great. Yes. And I, I confess ignorance. I don't know the historical... Um,
0: King Alfred of England. Of England. Yes. Uh, I think that's very interesting because even when I was a boy, King Alfred was still in the textbooks but going out. But we did have a number of stories about King Alfred and about his teachings. King Alfred was one of the great English kings who made the Bible the law book of the land, who established in the face of very serious invasions and the like in his day uh, a just and a godly order a very remarkable man, and almost totally forgotten today. But King Alfred of England was a very remarkable man in the early centuries.
1: Wasn't he uh, one of the first kings after the Viking invasions died down?
0: Yes. Well, they hadn't died down in his day. He was still fighting them. But uh, his was the beginning of reconstituting a free England. Very remarkable man, but king alfred uh is no longer in the school books because uh he doesn't represent the kind of person uh, we like. Uh, the readers in the elementary school when I was a boy were full of stories about King Alfred. Any other questions? Well, then we shall continue two weeks hence with our studies in the Sermon on the Mount.